0: Go ahead and open a Bible with me to Genesis chapter 23. Genesis is the first book in your Bible. And so if you're using the one that's right there in the rack, you can find our scripture reading today on page 20. We're in Genesis 23. And when we come to God's Word, we should come with expectation. An expectation that the reading and preaching of the Word of God will do something. That it will change us. Now, I saw an interesting news story this week. Bethany Becknell was home with a sick child last Sunday, so her husband took their other son to, to church, but she was listening to the church service from home, and it cost her $28, not to download or, or stream the service, but, but a sermon illustration cost her $28 because it did something unexpected. The pastor was preaching about how, how disconnected we can be at times, and he said, w- you don't even have to leave your house to place an order. He said, Alexa, order toilet paper. And her home device automatically ordered her a giant delivery of toilet paper. Not the change, not the thing she was expecting when listening to a sermon. Now, Today's sermon isn't going to cost you $28, I mean, hopefully. And in some ways, it's, I really expect it'll cost you something more. Because when you listen to God's word, it, it demands all that you are, your very life. But you'll get something better than a delivery of toilet paper later this week. Because when we come to God's word, we expect to hear him speak. We expect this word to change us, even as we turn to the end of Abraham's life, to the death of his wife, Sarah, to his own death. These seemingly ordinary, and and in some sense, Genesis chapter 23 is almost this bizarre negotiation process. And we might think, what am I supposed to do with this? But we come with expectation that listening to God's word will change us because it is God who speaks to us. And so listen as I read Genesis chapter 23. Sarah lived to be 127 years old. She died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. Then Abraham rose from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. He said, I am an alien and a stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. The Hittites replied to Abraham, Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. Then Abraham rose and bowed down before the people of the land, the Hittites. He said to them, "'If you are willing to let me bury my dead, then listen to me and intercede with Ephron, son of Zohar, on my behalf, so that he will sell me the cave of Machpelah, which belongs to him and is at the end of his field. Ask him to sell it to me, for the full price as a burial site among you.'" Ephron the Hittite was sitting among his people, and he replied to Abraham in the hearing of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of his city. "'No, my lord,' he said, "'listen to me, I give you this field.'" And I give you the cave that is in it. I give it to you. In the presence of my people, bury your dead. Again, Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in their hearing, Listen to me, if you will. I will pay the price of the field. Accept it from me so I can bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, Listen to me, my lord. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. But what is that between me and you? Bury your dead. Abraham agreed to Ephron's terms and weighed out for him the price he had named in the hearing of the Hittites 400 shekels of silver, according to the weight current among the merchants. So Ephron's field in Machpelah near Mamre, both the field and the cave in it and all the trees within the borders of the field, was deeded to Abraham as his property in the presence of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city. Afterward, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the field, in the, in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which is at Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave in it were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. And now turn the page with me to chapter 25. We've just read of the burial of Sarah in the cave, and we turn to chapter 25, verse 7, and read of the death of Abraham. Genesis 25, verse 7. Altogether, Abraham lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years. And he was gathered to his people. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, near Mamre, in the field of Ephron, son of Zohar the Hittite, the field Abraham had bought from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his wife Sarah. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who then lived near 'er Beir Lahairoi. This is the word of God, and we should expect him to change us with it. So let me pray. Father, as we read this ancient text of these ancient customs, we might wonder what you could be doing in our lives. And yet, even as we're confronted with the reality of death, we immediately are forced to consider our own, our own mortality. And so, Father, let us be honest with ourselves, be honest with you. Lord, for those who come in today who, who wrestle with the truth of your word, who, who wonder if you are a God who even speaks, if you're a God who even exists, Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself. you'd make yourself known today, through the preaching of your word, we come with expectation praying in the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen. Last fall in New York City, a group lounged on pillows scattered on the floor for an open mic night. They were there to talk about death. I am going to die. That's what the participants were asked to repeat in unison. As they sat around this room. I am going to die. A young man in his 30s talks about losing three friends to cancer in recent months. One woman describes her her job working as as a working for a suicide prevention hotline. A musician Chelsea Coleman sings about her sister who had been homeless and hasn't been seen in years. Why Does everyone have to die? Why does everything have to end? This open mic night was was part of a festival, a festival about death. It was called Reimagine End of Life. It was a festival that hosted several hundred events last fall in New York City over the course of a week with thousands of participants. They met in city hospitals, in churches, in comedy clubs, in bars, to think about death. The goal was merely to get people talking about this topic, a topic which, in a culture in which we're willing to talk about anything, still is one of those things that's just not quite polite. To admit out loud, I am going to die. Because we live in a culture that would like to not think about that. You and I probably don't want to have to think about that. We look at past generations and think they were obsessed with the topic of death. My, my family toured a couple of years ago, Font Hill Castle up in Doylestown. It was built by this eccentric man who, who lived in the late Victorian age, and, and he built this giant castle to kind of display all of his art from around the world. And, and in, in one of the rooms, we were reminded of the Victorian obsession with death. Because in Henry Mercer's office, there is a human skull. And the tour guide, when we asked about it, said, well, yeah, that was a common thing. That was a gift from his mother when he went off to university, which was a common practice. You would give a young man a human skull so that he'd be reminded he was going to die. To force him to admit, in the prime of life, I am going to die. To die. Now, that's something we think is, is sort of macabre. Something that, uh, well, I wouldn't decorate my room like that. It seems an inappropriate paperweight to keep around. But see, we, in our culture, we, we try both to hide death and to hide ourselves from death. We don't like to think about it, we entrust death to the professionals. And if we start a conversation about that, that just doesn't feel polite. It's, it's too sad. It's too personal. But as we read God's word, you, it, 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 it might not have been obvious because this is really one of those passages where you think, wait, this is what we're going to talk about? After your wife just died? We're going to go through this lengthy negotiation process? But, but what this passage does for us is it shows us a, a biblical way of looking at death. Because in this passage is the hope of the gospel. All right. First, I, I want us to recognize the, the reality, the sorrow of death. Notice how, how Sarah and Abraham are introduced to us in this passage. We're told Sarah's death. She's the, the only woman in all of Scripture whose age at her death is mentioned, because she is the mother of the nation, the mother of the, the promise. And then look at, look at verse 2, when we're told that, that after she died, Abraham went to mourn for Sarah, to weep over her. This is a tragic loss after decades of marriage. So Abraham mourns. He weeps. See, there's something tragic about death. Even for someone who has lived 127 years, or when you turn to Abraham's life, a man who has lived, 175 years we're even told that abraham breathed his last he died at a good old age he was an old man and full of years but that that's giving us a glimpse that that he was contented he was happy it doesn't just mean he lived a long time he lived a good life he had seen god's blessing and yet there's something tragic in the death of someone we love even after a long life even in those moments when you say well well, she lived, a, she lived a good long time. There's still horror at someone's death. Now, now maybe you, you, your complaint against Christians is, is not that we don't talk about death enough, but that we seem to talk about it all the time. And in like creepy, gory kind of ways, when we talk about the waters of baptism representing the blood of Jesus, when we sing about blood being shed on the cross, that, that we actually seem obsessed as Christians with death. Because maybe your view is, is like, it just ends. Sure, you live a certain number of years, you die, and then you're buried. End of story. You cease to exist. And so the sorrow and the sadness that you feel, well, it's the, the loss of someone you loved, but there's no real tragedy in it. Maybe you think it's just the sort of cycle of life. It just goes on in a circle. There are births and there are deaths, and that's just the way it is. And yet this passage, with the tragedy of verse 2, with Abraham's weeping and sorrow, is a reminder to us that death is an intrusion. Death is not the way the story was meant to be. Death has entered the world, the Bible tells us, because of sin, because of our rebellion, our our turning away from God, our choosing to live our own ways. Death is a result of, of what we have done to break the world, and so when we face death, we need to do so with honesty, recognizing the horror and the tragedy, the sadness and the sorrow that come at the death of someone we love. And and think of of Jesus, when he hears of the death of Lazarus, Lazarus, a a friend of his, when he goes and he is there with, with the sisters of Lazarus, what does the Bible tell us? In that easiest of all verses in the Bible to memorize, Jesus wept. He knows the end of the story. He, he knows why, why John chapter 11 is this great and pivotal moment, and yet Jesus in the face and the, the, the sadness of death, he is deeply moved, the Scriptures tell us. He, is, he, he feels the brokenness and the pain of this world, and so he weeps in the face of death. See, it's appropriate for us to mourn to feel the loss of loved ones who have preceded us in death. And even, and even in these, these passages, we get a glimpse of, of what, a, what a funeral looks like. The body of one we love there buried in the ground as family gathers. Even in Genesis 25, surprisingly so, these, these brothers who haven't seen each other in a long time, these brothers, you know, the last time we saw them together, was, it was animosity and hatred, but, but Isaac and Ishmael come together for their father's funeral because it is right to mourn over those we have lost. And that ache and that sorrow that you feel deep inside you today, even as you think of those that have preceded you in death, that's the appropriate response. And and, and the the tragedy is they have preceded you in death. Meaning you know where this story is going. You don't need me to quote you statistics that 2.9 million Americans will die this year. You know it when you read through the obituaries when you see the tragic news of someone you went to high school with, when you feel the pain and the loss and the sorrow of, of one you love. But the horror is, I can tell you what your end will be. can't tell you when. But I can tell you the mortality rate for your condition. It's 100%. All of us will die. And so this passage forces us to kind of wrestle with, but, but how do we face Death, and it might seem surprising then to, to to find hope in in this passage because we go from the the sorrow and sadness of Abraham's private mourning. He leaves his wife's dead body, and then he goes and speaks and 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 goes through this negotiation process with the Hittites. But but look with me at the glimpses of hope that we have here. Yes, it gives us a little bit of of a story of what does it look like to, to negotiate in the ancient world. But but that's not really the lesson we need. We're given, the, we're given a few glimpses, glimpses here of, of what is taking place. Because twice in this passage, in verse 2 and then again in verse 19, we're told that the place where they're at in Hebron is in the land of Canaan. It's in the land of Canaan, but of course we know that. There's only one Hebron. We're not confused about where Abraham has been living at this point. And so we're, we're given the detail that, that in verse 2, Abraham is there in Hebron where his wife dies in the land of Canaan. it's repeated again in verse 19. It's because the land of Canaan is the land of promise. We're meant to remember, wait, why are we here? We're here because God made Abraham come. God brought Abraham to this place, this place that, that was the land promised to him. It is the land of Canaan. It belongs to another. And so Abraham even admits when he speaks to the people in verse 4, I'm an alien. I'm a stranger among you. He doesn't have any of the the rights of citizens. He doesn't belong to to their city. He doesn't belong to their nation. He doesn't even have the right to own property, and so he has to come to them to negotiate. But but it's interesting that the negotiation doesn't just end with a burial place for his wife— He's not simply trying to secure the rights of burial, a borrowed tomb. He demands that he own the tomb, that the land belong to him. See, because this is a glimpse of God fulfilling the promise. What had God said to Abraham? Yes, leave your land, go to this land where you will be a stranger, but God over and over again in the Abraham narrative, says, this will be your land. It will belong to your descendants after you. As an eternal possession, this will be their land. It it happens not just once or twice, but it's in there when we first meet Abraham in chapter 12. It's repeated in chapter 13, repeated again in chapter 15, repeated multiple times in chapter 17, repeated again for us in chapter 22. This land belongs to you. And yet, up to this point, how much land does Abraham own? None. None of it. None of the promise that God has made to him has actually been fulfilled for him yet. And so when Abraham negotiates, it's not merely so that he can have a place to bury his wife. He gets that in the, in the, the first round of negotiations. You can use any, any one of our tombs. We'll offer it to you. But Abraham demands to own the property. He negotiates, paying full price for it, which it's hard to know. I mean, we don't know how big the field was, so we don't know if this was a good price. I also don't know how, many, how much was 400 shekels of silver really, what was its buying power. I don't know the, the price of a gallon of milk at the time to be able to compare it. So I don't know if he got a good deal or not, but he doesn't, he doesn't negotiate the price down. He merely says, whatever it takes for me to own this land, I want to buy the property because this is the first glimpse of the promise of God coming true. We'd seen in Abraham's life the promise that he would have a son a mirac- through a miraculous birth. That promise has come. The blessings of God, are, 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 we're told, even in chapter 25, the blessings of God fall upon Isaac. After Abraham's death, the, the promise is, is repeated. The promise doesn't end with Abraham, but it continues with his son. And this is the first glimpse of the promise that Abraham gets the land that is promised to his descendants. His first deed, his first piece of ownership, he's, he's, he's beginning to gather the pieces around the monopoly board of God's promise. He will own it all. And this is what it looks like to live by faith. Trusting God even in the sorrow and sadness, knowing that the promises of God hold true even when we look around us and think, but here, right now, at the death of my wife, I don't even have a place to bury her. You promised me the land. and I have none of it. Because the faith of Abraham is for us a picture of what it looks to live by, what it looks like to live by faith, to believe that what God says is true. Turn with me to the, to the book of Hebrews. We've turned here multiple times in this series to Hebrews chapter 11. If you're if you're following along in the Bible that's in front of you, turn to page 1192. That's page 1192 in your pew Bible to Hebrews chapter 11. This is that beautiful passage where we see the, the faith, the, the faithfulness of God shown in the faith that He gives to those who follow after Him. We actually last week in last week's sermon looked at the faith of Abraham at the the sacrifice of his son Isaac. But I but I want us to to, to look at verses. 13, look at verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 11, where we see that the promises that God makes to us are promises that are guaranteed to be fulfilled, but we shouldn't expect them right in this moment. We're people whose faith is forward looking. Listen to, to the way Hebrews describes it. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. All these people were still living by faith when they died, speaking of Abraham and Sarah specifically. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Do you see what we're being told? In, in this world, you, you, are, you are a stranger, you are a sojourner, you're a wanderer. You have no permanent possession here. Like Abraham, you, you have, yes, maybe a deed to a small piece of property, but this isn't where you will spend eternity. And that longing you have for something more, for something better, is is pointing you to the promise that God has already made. That there is a better land, a better country, a better place for us. The sorrow you feel at the death of one you love is a reminder that this world doesn't hold all of the promises for you. The sorrow you feel in this life, the disappointment in this life, should force us back to the promises of God. Can I trust that what God said is true? They're not looking merely for a country on this earth. Abraham had opportunity to travel back. He had the resources to return to the place of his birth. No, the hope that he has is a hope of a heavenly home, a place where he will no longer be a, a sojourner or a stranger, a place where he will belong, a place that will be his possession forever. That's the promise God makes to all who trust him, to those who come by faith, putting their hope in him. And so the reality of death, facing death, should, should confront us with a seriousness, a, a, a gospel seriousness about our own lives. Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ? Do you stand like a Hittite wondering if, if your gods have enough power to get you through this life and the next? Do you stand as, as, as someone who says, well, but this life is all that there is? Or do you stand trusting that the God who speaks to us is the God who knows what is good, knows what is true? So you, so you might think, but, but how could we ever know? Nobody has ever told us what comes after this life. But haven't they? What would, you, what would you need to know what comes next? You would need someone who has been there. You would need someone who understands life after death. And so put your trust in the God who speaks to us. The God who speaks to us from heaven with, with words of gospel hope. And so there's this this gospel seriousness that should confront us, that we need good news in the face of sorrow and sadness. But but if you're already one who follows after Christ, then this kind of passage, a passage about death, should confront you with a gospel urgency as well. I just told you, you, I mean, you didn't need me to tell you this, everyone you know is going to die. Every one of them. The people you love, the people you pray for, they are facing death. Maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow. Maybe they will outlive me. Maybe they will outlive you. But there's a gospel urgency that you and I have hope that lasts beyond this life. We walk alongside those that that are facing death without hope. We have words of hope. Will we share it? Or will we think, well, they might think it's a little strange if I bring up death. Okay, well then don't start there. Like you don't have to put a human skull on your desk to, to prompt conversations about death. Merely talk about the good news, the hope that you have. Ask them questions as they face the sorrows and sadness of life. Offer them words of hope. We, when facing death, when facing the reality and the sorrow of death, should have a gospel urgency to share good news with those around us. Because we come to the tomb, we come to the end of life not merely with sorrow and sadness, but with hope. Because we know that the tomb, the grave, is not the end of the story, not the end of the gospel story. Yes, it will be your end. We all face a final resting place. But when the gospels talk about the the gospels, they tell us the story of Jesus. When the gospels tell us about the death of Jesus, all four of them give us this sort of, surprising detail, that Jesus is laid in another man's tomb. Each of the Gospels introduce us to Joseph of Arimathea, a, a wealthy man who, who had a new tomb. No one had ever been laid in it, and so he took Jesus's body and laid it in the tomb. See, Abraham demanded to have a tomb of his own, one that he owned. And he could hold the deed. He could prove, this belongs to me. You can't take it away. This is where we have a permanence in this land. And yet the Gospels tell us that Jesus' tomb was a borrowed tomb. Borrowed from Joseph, but borrowed because he wasn't going to need it long. Jesus spends two nights and three days in a tomb, but he is not dead. See, our gospel hope doesn't end at a grave. Our gospel hope is in the Savior who steps out of the grave. Our hope rests in the Savior who is alive. Jesus died for our sins. His blood was shed to free us from the penalty of death. Jesus rose from the dead. He only borrowed the tomb. Our hope rests in the resurrection of Jesus. Jonathan Edwards was perhaps America's most important theologian. He ended his life as the president of the College of New Jersey, which we now call Princeton University. His writings on life and death, on heaven and hell, give us a rich theology, but perhaps the most important words written about death from the Edwards household come not from his pen, but from those of his wife. When she found out about his Death. when she had to report it to her daughter. She composed a letter. A letter which, which, which confirms our hope in the resurrection, even while admitting the sorrow and sadness of death. A mother writing to her daughter to inform her, the daddy is dead. Sarah Edwards writes, What shall I say? a holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. The poetic imagery of the 19th century, a holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. But my God lives. My God lives, and he has my heart. The sorrow of those that we lose in death is real. The hope that we have in Christ is eternal. There is hope for us, all of us, as we face death. Jesus shed not only his tears, Jesus shed his blood, and Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for the hope of the gospel, the power of your word. Lord, even as we deal with with these difficult subjects, Lord, I pray that you would comfort those of us that are in sorrow and sadness and mourning. Those of us that think of of loved ones who have been lost in recent days or in years past. Lord, we feel the, the, the sorrow and brokenness in this world, and so give us comfort in your gospel. Lord, for those who have not put their trust in Jesus, I pray that even now, even as we pray, even as we conclude this service and song, that you would give faith to those who do not yet believe, that they would be able in hope to turn and find forgiveness, to find eternal life in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we rejoice in the work of Jesus, our Savior, Jesus who died for our sins, Jesus who was raised from the dead, Jesus who is the living and eternal king. We pray in his name. Amen.